Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap Podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. I actually do think, in spite of the rhetoric that was on the floor today, that this is actually this is quite a good deal from a from a Republican perspective. So now, at Hobbs's request, we are capitulating. This is 100% a Hobbs-run Democrat love fest bill. The committee has made it very clear that they're not interested in seriously vetting my nominations. They're interested in carrying out their personal vendetta against me. Trump pleaded not guilty to four felony charges stemming from his effort to overturn the results of the 2020 election. A majority of people said climate change should be the priority, including a majority of independents. But three quarters of Republicans said the opposite. This morning, I am joined by Stacey Pearson, Democratic consultant and co-founder of Lumen Strategies, and Paul Bentz, VP of Research and Strategy at GOP consulting firm High Ground. Thanks to you both for being here. Hey. Good morning. All right, so we have to begin with the legislature because the session officially ended this week, the longest session ever. Is that right? It was a record? That's right. Wow, okay. So lawmakers finally declared sine die, and it was it was an interesting session, right, because this was the first time in a very long time we had divided government, and a lot of things sort of played out because of that. So I want to begin with a very open-ended question for you each, and I'll start with you, Stacey. Just what's your biggest takeaway watching this kind of rancorous and then sometimes breakthrough session? Well, I think the governor delivered on the promises she made to voters, Mm -hmm. which is not let the crazy things through the goalposts that we've seen over the course of the last few years. Um, And she really delivered that. One of the biggest criticisms going into her administration was whether or not she was going to be strong enough to stand up to the Freedom Caucus and the tinfoil hat wearers and the wackos. And indeed, she was with not just a record-breaking number of vetoes, Um, But uh, uh, this strong message back to the divided government that she's not going to stand for nonsense. Mm -hmm. All right, Paul. Well, I I think for the first time in quite a while, we saw uh, a significant amount of compromise. We saw folks come together and actually negotiate. Some of those negotiations were more public than others. And I don't think everybody got exactly what they wanted. Uh, But we did see several things get done, like the budget was done in fairly uh, quick time. We also saw, finally, Proposition 400's extension was done. But one thing that I do also think it noticed is the exposure of the split within the Republican Party, the Mm. fact that there is a significant portion of that Freedom Caucus that really does not have a desire to negotiate, to govern, to have anything besides their purity test uh, on these particular topics. Proposition 400 is a great example. It's a it's a transportation plan. It's been in place for 40 years. It is why we are not like California, why we're not facing gridlock and congestion. It's incredibly popular, but there's just a certain portion of it that just can't come around to it. That's one of the biggest takeaways that I saw. That's really interesting. Stacey, what do you make of that, like this split that we did see play out in the Republican ranks? And did Democrats take advantage of that? I think Democrats will be taking advantage of that, particularly in this next cycle with such close margins. I mean, we've got one seat advantages in both the House and the Senate. I think this is an opportunity for Democrats to pick up seats and say, look, we need functional government. And this 
the the actual business of governing is not the same as activism. And mm. you can be a Freedom Caucus tinfoil hat wearing activist all day long. But when it comes to getting to the Capitol, work needs to get done. Mm-hmm. Paul, what do you make of that on the other side of it? Right? Like, so Stacey's big takeaway was that the governor did what she said she would do. She had a record number. I think it was 143 vetoes in the end, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and blocked a lot of the things that she said she would block. But what about the Democratic agenda? Did it anywhere? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things that did uh, definitely proceed. But at the same time, she came out of the gate with her state of the state saying she was going to do something about the ESAs. Something wasn't really done on that. She was very strong on water and that we haven't seen as much activity on that. At the same time, some of these negotiations and compromises that she made has earned her the ire of her side of the aisle. We see the more progressive Democrats um, coming out and being criticized. We saw in that audio clip, oh, the you know love fest that we're supposed to have. I mean, there, there's challenges on the Democratic side as well. I think the governor has done a really good job. Um, getting Proposition 400 passed was very good because it's incredibly popular. Her actions on water would be incredibly popular. There is a strong desire among the electorate. Water is a top issue facing the state, mm. has ro- risen every single year, particularly when we talk about groundwater in rural areas where it's unregulated. Attorney General Mays has done a really good job pointing out um, what has been going on in rural Arizona, particularly among the Saudis and their pumping of water for alfalfa. But the Saudis aren't the only group. It's a much bigger problem that unregulated groundwater can be pumped out. That is a home run issue for the governor and something that she can really increase her popularity if she addresses. So how, Stacey, then do does the Democratic caucus sort of get those issues where they want to go? They're going to have to work with Republicans, right, because you're still going to be in the minority going forward. Yeah, and that's exactly what they're doing right now mm-hmm. is putting the details, putting the meat on the bones, so to speak, in terms of her strategic plan and how to address water. But I, I want to flag that we had a previous administration. She inherited... Um, from the Ducey administration, a denial that we had a water problem. So one of her first actions was just addressing the transparency, that maybe there's not as much under them hills there that as we thought there was. <laughs> and so it, it, to be able to do that without alienating the development community or or address it, or costing us economic development has been a very um, – a razor wire, really, that she's been walking on, and she's done an incredible job. It sounds like what you're both are talking about here is like actual governing, like doing real things to address <laughs> real problems. Weird. <laughs> uh, and and I think like we went into this session, lots of people thinking nothing's going to happen. Like you're not going to get anything done here. You have a Democratic governor. You've got a GOP-led legislature. This hasn't happened in forever. No one wants to work with one another. But there were, as you both said, some real moments in which they did. Are, is that surprising to anyone else? I don't know. <laughs> no, but at the same time, I don't think anybody really won the day. I mm. think in the long term, the, when the governor gets the legs, her legs underneath her, she will be able to much more masterfully win this session. I think the budget itself with its Christmas tree approach with everybody getting to pick their little projects, I think in the long run, that's not a wise approach. But I think it was a nice thing to settle on. On the other hand, she's also been handing gifts. You've got... Uh, Republicans in swing districts that are voting no on essential items and coming out on controversial topics, that is foolish for them, recognizing where their electorate is at. And so, um, you know, the governor said she's going to flip the legislature in 2024. And quite frankly, some of these swing district Republicans are absolutely giving her the opportunity to do that. That's really interesting. Stacey, you think those are going to be opportunities that Democrats can take advantage of? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, not to over um, discuss this water issue, but it's the one issue in Arizona where Republicans and Democrats, and Paul knows this better than I do in polling, mm. but where no one's denying that we might have a problem. Right. 
I mean, we're we're fighting about climate change. You know, we're we're talking. There, there's still such these are such divisive issues. But no one's calling the governor's office saying you're lying to us. You're you're <laughs> we, I, we. There's more. I turned on my tap and it was fine. Huh. I mean, it's yeah. It's it's been a very interesting approach, and hopefully, it sticks. Okay, so we're looking forward a little bit to what comes next session. One of the things that's really outstanding uh, that I think we need to talk about is director confirmations, because that's kind of one area where no one really came together. They have not really settled this. There is a committee run by Jay Kaufman in which, you know, they've heard a few and confirmed a few people, but there are dozens left to confirm. What does this do, Paul, going forward? Like, how does the Hobbs administration function when some of these people can run, you know, they can do it without confirmation for about a year, but that year is going to come up pretty fast. Right. Well, first of all, I think it's interesting that Hoffman and uh, Senate President Peterson were not on the same page at the end of the session. <laughs> so that um, that was very interesting and very telling uh, where you had sort of the business minded Republicans and where they wanted to go versus the ideological Republicans. So I, that does put a little bit more exposure on Hoffman on this confirmation side. Um, you're correct. They can serve for over a year. I suspect what will happen at that point if the confirmations don't move forward. And I'm sure they're already planning for this. Is that there's been a historical context for this. Governor Symington did this in in his administration. You appoint the person that you want to be a director as a deputy director and you keep operations moving. Um, <laughs> it's it's sort of a it's a workaround. It's a, really, though, based on the fact that the governor has shown her willingness to negotiate and come to the table and listen to Republicans. Mm-hmm. They what they should offer in return is bringing back those confirmations. It's very silly and childish that they have not been willing to keep those confirmations moving forward because that's the function of government. They're there to review it. They're not there to grind it to a halt. You think that'll happen, Stacey? Uh, I think there's a point of diminishing return Mm. for Hoffman in terms of continuing to be the cog in the wheel. And there is a national crisis with recruitment and retention of government employees, just your day-to-day wonks, the people who measure the temperature of the water or people who process your paperwork at the counter. And to continue with insecurity and an environment of unknowns certainly doesn't help solve that problem. And Mm -hmm. there are vacancies across agencies, across departments. There are people that are tired of getting yelled at. And those folks, um, I think, are the are the 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 staff downstream are the ones that are disproportionately impacted. Mm, I never think of that. Yeah. So, okay, last minute or so here in this session, this segment of of the cap here, I want to ask you both for your maybe predictions going forward, because next session might be a little different. It's an election year. Right. How does that change things, Paul? Well, I, I think we're going to see some addressing of maybe some more election issues. I think they'll Republicans will try to push that to the forefront to uh, to look at those things. I think it's a foolhardy Aaron on their part, but I think that try to score some of those political points with their base. I think that's one of the areas that they'll try to focus on next year. Daisy? Yeah, I assume uh, democracy will be front and center. Um, I also think that from the left, we're going to be talking about choice and talking about the environment. We're going to be talking about public safety. We're going to be talking about the issues that people are actually having conversations, uh, housing affordability, that they're actually having conversations at their kitchen table about. I want to dive into this next segment with some new numbers out of the Secretary of State's office this week, showing that independents are once again the largest group of registered voters in Arizona. This is 1.45 million Arizonans now. They're now slightly edging out even Republicans. This has happened before, I know. But I want to mean I want to begin this bit of the conversation with a little bit of a definition, because I think people get this confused. Paul, I know you've done a lot of polling on this. First, what do we mean by independent voters? Is this unaffiliated Mm -hmm. voters? Is this swing voters? Is this moderate? What does it mean? 
So what it actually means is those who choose to not be of a party, mm -hmm. particularly not to be of the Republican Party or Democratic Party, but also uh, Libertarian and any other of the small parties. Really, quite frankly, they're registered according to the Secretary of State as other. Okay. Um, so we they would call them unaffiliated or independent with a small I. There is no such thing as an independent party. And people say, well, why don't they form an independent party? The whole reason that they are an independence because they don't want to do that. So um, <laughs> it sort of defeats the purpose of it. But okay. yeah, you're correct that uh, unaffiliated voters or independents are now the largest registered group in the state. This happened prior to 2016 for about two years prior. They mm -hmm. were the largest group in the state. And then with that presidential preference election and the revelation that that race you cannot vote in unless you are of a party made a significant group of people changed their registration. And so we saw this period of time for the last five years or so where th that was more that people chose to be of those parties. But this is back to our default. This is what I expect is barring a registration effort pushed by Republicans or pushed by Democrats, most of our new voters, particularly young voters, choose to be an independent instead of choosing to identify with a party. And then that likely changes as the election gets closer and people realize they can't vote in that primary otherwise. So one thing to be clear to the audience is that as an independent, you can vote in regular primary elections mm -hmm. for governor, for uh, Senate, for those races. The only one you can't vote in is the presidential preference election. But you do have to select a ballot. And that's that significant barrier to participation. Independents underperform in our primaries because they aren't treated the same. And in hmm. fact, independent candidates are overwhelmingly untreat not treated the same in our election system as well. Um, you have to be sent – if you're a Republican or a Democrat, you get sent the ballot of your choice mm -hmm. and then you've picked that. If you're an independent, you get sent a postcard that says, what ballot do you want? Mm -hmm. And you can't choose to vote in one race for the Republican primary and then another race for the Democratic primary. Like say you can't vote for Republican and Republican governor and then Democratic secretary of state race. You, you're basically forced to shop out of one aisle. Yeah, yeah, which really changes things. Okay, so Stacy, then in your experience working on the Democratic side, how often can you pull those independents over, and what kind of issues are you looking at to do that? It's the only way Democrats have won in mm -hmm. Arizona is by pulling moderate Republicans and independents over, and in large part that goes straight through the Southeast Valley. There's not a single Democrat that has won statewide office since Cinema defined this approach in 2018. That doesn't go right through Gilbert, Mesa, Chandler, if folks that are um, perhaps registered Republicans, um, women in particular, but mm -hmm. they have strong opinions on choice and reproductive rights or uh, marriage equality. I mean, these these folks have um, have been studied ad nauseum, and it's really the social um, the social issues that they have broken with the Republican Party. And so there's there, mathematically, even if even if candidate X got 100 percent of the Democrats to vote for him or her, still lose. Mathematically mm -hmm. in Arizona, you have to get the independents and the moderate Republicans moved over. You have to, especially now if they're the biggest group, it's right. going to change the game. No, Paul, no yeah, single group can win statewide office without appealing to independent voters. There's other issues. Stacey hit on it, several of them. Reproductive rights is certainly one of yeah. them. Um, and large portions of the of the independent electorate also do not believe that the election was stolen, do not <laughs> want to take away our right to an early vote. There's other there's other issues that Republicans continue to harp on that they're on the wrong side of. Mm -hmm. And so we see that where they they take these ideological stands and they're not thinking about those independent voters. The swing districts and along the sort of the 101 corridor, I would add to Stacey's list of, you know, when you come down in sort of that Scottsdale, Phoenix, Arcadia area, mm -hmm. there's a lot of independents in that area too. High wage 
you know, high income, high education attainment that like to pick and choose. They, you know, they they pick different candidates for different issues. They've been a key for Cinema to win, for Mark Kelly to win, for Joe Biden to win, because quite frankly, Republicans have shown very little interest in appealing to those audiences. That's really interesting. So, Stacey, I have to ask then, has Donald Trump completely changed the game there? I mean, in terms of just splitting the Republican Party into like a Trump loyalist base and then everybody else? Well, we saw it first in 2016, right, where we had to find, and and in full disclosure, I worked on the Penn Zone campaign in Mm -hmm. 16, but we had to find a Trump-McCain anti-Arpaio voter, Hmm. um, which we were told, I was told by multiple national groups that I was insane. Um, But we knew that there was an opportunity there. And so it it really hasn't changed the game as much as it's clarified who is maneuverable and what Arizona Republicans really are, which is not which are not the extremists. Hmm. I I think that's the one of the biggest takeaways is that Arizona being the last state in the lower 48 to join the union is been defiant and independent and libertarian and you know, get out of my bedroom and keep your government off my property group of people uh, since since the beginning of time. But, so it makes sense that we are leading an independent voters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing to point out, though, similarly, it's, it does apply to Democrats as well. We are not, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. Right. Uh, Democrats here. You look at people like Penzone, you look at people like Cinema when she ran or Mark Kelly, who ran as uh you know, a more a populist, more of a centrist, more of a Arizonan. Kirsten Cinemas talked a lot about that during her race. Uh, Katie Hobbs did a very good job of this as well, appealing to that audience less about sort of the far left issues, but more about governing, more about practical approach. Um, it's been the playbook that Democrats have used very effectively. Meanwhile, Republicans are going and having rallies out in the far <laughs> flanks where they already are winning. You know, they're winning these these audiences in you know, Mojave County and in rural Arizona and the White Mountains, 80-20, and they're going to go try to get those to, what, 85-15? There's just not margins there. Mm. They're not fighting for these audiences in these swing areas where there are persuadables, and the Democrats are. The Democrats have really done a good job of going into those audiences and communicating to them why their candidate's better. So then I have to ask you both about Kirsten Cinema, who you just brought up, obviously an independent now. And if more in- people are, are registered independent voters or I guess not registered as a party <laughs> voters here in Arizona, that seems like it would play right into if she runs. And this is still an if. But, Stacey, will that be the case? How does she sort of appeal to that centrist group again without a party? So we know that voters are thirsty for substance. And we know this to be true. I mean, we hear it over and over again in focus groups and in polling. Um, so what I think the approach could be is for her to talk about her accomplishments, for her to talk about codifying marriage equality, for her to talk about $4 billion she secured for clean water in Arizona, for her to talk about the things that she has gotten done since 2018. That list of accomplishments is long and distinguished. And I am very confident that this particular block of swing voters will tune in to see what happened and how the sausage really got made. Mm. So it's almost a question, Paul, of like who would she, if she runs, hurt more, a Democratic opponent or a Republican opponent? And it seems like you would assume it would be a Democratic opponent, but that might not be the case. The first thing you have to start with is that basically she needs to earn about 60 to 65 percent of the unaffiliated vote. And 
I'm not sure that portion of them are persuadable. There are within that unaffiliated group, there is a segment of them that are definitely more, much more conservative leaning, left the Republican Party and became an independent because it's not conservative enough, mm-hmm. left the Democratic Party because they're not progressive enough. So you really, there are some fringes in the independents as well. So she would have to solidify 65 of those audiences. And then she needs to get at least a quarter of both, maybe a little bit more Republicans than Democrats. The issue I think we're seeing right now, she really is struggling among her Democratic base, the folks that feel like with her changing her party and some of the actions that she has to make those deals get done and uh, left them behind. Mm -hmm. She has a a significant number of accomplishments that she could point to. Basically, a significant portion of the Biden agenda doesn't happen Mm -hmm. without her helping make that happen. But she's going to need a lot of money to say that narrative. And then she's got to find a base of support that can go out and walk with her, knock on doors with her, go to events with her, you know, because that Democratic precinct committee group that was with her in 2018 is not with her this time. That's really interesting, right, Stacey? Because, like, sure, there's the party apparatus, and that matters. But also, like, Democrats, as Paul's saying, Democrats are very angry with Kirsten Sinema, it seems. I, I don't know if Twitter's a real place. <laughs> like, let's just <laughs> let's just start there. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate the opinion of AZ Lady 513942 <laughs> and how much she despises uh, the senior senator. But uh, the, that's not a real human. It's right. not a real thing. This is a bot. And I think, um, and, and look, I, I've got a jaded perspective. My husband's in law enforcement. I spent a lot of time with cops. They love her. I mean, mm. the, the, there, there, there are pockets of people who really respect what she's done. And having talked to a number of women, really in the last few months, um, in particular, they're just tired of her getting screamed at. And mm. there's something that is gender based in that. Like, all right, we get it. You're mad. Enough. Like, we're done. Like, I'm done listening to you scream on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. So I really think those numbers, and we've seen her numbers improve with Democrats since she left the party. And to Paul's point, those are people who are who are also frustrated with the two-party system and 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 just tired of the quagmire. That's really interesting. Okay, last 30 seconds, Paul. What's your prediction? Is she going to run? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the million-dollar question. Yes. Right? I, I, you know, I, I certainly think she's she's done a lot of the work that you would expect for somebody who's going to run. Um, I would encourage her to run. We need more independent candidates in the state of Arizona. I think that's a incredibly important part of the dialogue, but she faces really difficult odds. I mean, her signature requirements alone mm-hmm. will be six times higher than any of her Republican or Democratic counterparts. Six times higher. All right, we'll leave it there. Paul Bentz, VP of Research and Strategy at GOP Consulting Firm High Ground, Stacey Pearson, Democratic consultant and co-founder of Lumen Strategies. Thanks, you both, for being here. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.